0: Hey, Lakeview family, and welcome to this third episode of our series on the heart of judgment, where we are studying through the book of Micah. Today, we're going to be looking at chapter three, which really starts a new section in Micah. Chapters one and two are really pretty connected in the idea that God is bringing justice and dealing justly with his people's injustice, And in chapter 3, going through chapter 5, we're going to see that God is working to assemble for himself a people out of his sinful nation. And this is really a theme that we have throughout uh, the Bible, that God is assembling for himself a people. That the victory pictured in Revelation 7 is of God being worshipped by a gathering of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Let me just read this for you. Revelation 7, 9 and 10. He says, After this, I looked and beheld a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robe with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the glory of God in the assembly of his people I didn't, don't know about you, but when I grew up, I didn't hear a whole lot about the corporate, the group nature of Christianity. The, the way it was presented, or maybe just the way I understood it, was, was it was primarily about my relationship to God. Right? It was that I am a sinner, but God loved me. And that if I repent, he would make me his son. And that was kind of the highest truth of Christianity. And, and I don't want to do anything to diminish that. The Bible talks all the time about our individual relationship with God, that we are sons and daughters. But I don't want to so emphasize that that we miss the idea that the Bible also pictures us relating to God as a people, as a group, with a couple of exceptions, the New Testament is written to assemblies of God's people, to whole churches. The New Testament is full of exhortations for us to be united. John 17, where Jesus is praying for us to be one the same way he and the Father, the members of the Trinity, are united. First Corinthians 12, describing us as many members of one united Body. First Peter 2 calling us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession. God sees us both as individual children and as a body, as an assembly. And Micah is going to be revealing something about what it will take for God to assemble his people out of the ruins of a fallen humanity. So Micah 3 is going to start us by giving a picture of the corruption of the people. And it's a little bit different than chapter 2, which chapter 2 is primarily calling out the individual sins of people oppressing others and rejecting and abandoning God. But, but Micah 3 is going to have a group nature to it. The whole nation is going to be shown as corrupted. I'm going to see it specifically in the sins of its leaders, but this is really representing the system of sin, the the depth of corruption through the whole nation that God is bringing judgment on, the whole group. So let's start. Verse 1. This is how you know that it's a new section. It starts with, And I said, We're going to see the same thing in chapter 6, but And I said, new section, Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them, and break their bones in pieces, and chop them up like meat in a pot like flesh in a cauldron, starting off here with poetry at its best, to so the, the rulers, those who are corrupting justice supposed to stand for justice, but are corrupting it, are being pictured essentially as butchers. They're treating people like animals. They're they're pulling the flesh off their bones. They're ripping and chopping them up and throwing them and cooking them in a pot. Like Ebenezer Scrooge in the beginning of A Christmas Carol, they're just treating people for whatever they can get out of them as objects, not things to be valued and honored for what they are. And this injustice is made worse by the fact that these rulers represent justice. Right? It's not just that they're treating people as objects, but it's that they're using the power that was intended to protect those people to treat them as objects and to exploit them. Micah is recognizing that there are degrees of perversion here. Some things are more wrong than others. It's kind of like the mold you might have in an orange, right? If, if, any sin, any mold you might have in an orange, you, you throw that orange away. You're not going to eat that thing. But you know there's a difference between an orange that's got a little bit of mold starting at the top, kind of going into the stem, and one that is totally black and oozing green and smells like rot, there are degrees of corruption and revulsion in sins. And we, we experience the same sort of thing in our, our real lives, right? Like, it's bad to have a spiteful neighbor. But it is worse to have a spiteful sheriff. There are degrees of wrong. And Micah is saying that the leader's sin is so bad because it's more like that second orange. You've taken something that was supposed to be really good and corrupted it. And so he's bringing judgment. Verse 4: Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Again, here we're seeing God's poetic justice at work. Those who were deaf to the cries for justice among the people, God is going to be deaf to their cries. When, his judge, when God's judgment comes on the people, he will not even look to them to have any pity. They tried to stop justice, but now justice is coming to swallow them. Now, it can be easy to read a passage like this and just say, well, I'm not in a position of authority or power, so I don't have a lot to do here other than agree with God that, yes, what they're doing is wrong. But, but there's a principle here we see repeated through the Bible that God holds people responsible for what he gives them, right? You may not have authority, but what what do you have? Do, do you have wealth? Do you have influence in some places? Do you have abilities that can be used, relationships are, that are significant? Well, how do you use those things? Are you using those things for the purposes God gave them to you? Are you using them to care for the hurting and the needy, or are you primarily just consuming them Yourself. Now, what about forgiveness? Right, we see this same principle applied in Matthew eighteen, twenty-one through thirty-five, where the ruler forgives his servant this huge debt, but then that servant is condemned because he does not turn around and forgive this minor debt that he has from another person. God holds him; the ruler holds him responsible for not giving out what the ruler has given him? Do we treat the forgiveness God has given us that way? Do we consume it for ourselves but refuse to give it to others? And how will God judge us when he comes to say, what have you done with what I have given you? What are you doing in the place I have placed you with the influence and ability and resources that I have given you? Because God requires his people to do justly with what they have. And we'll see, he requires that his people prize his word. Micah next is going to turn his poetic sights on his fellow prophets. Verse 5, he says, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. Here again, God is calling out corruption among his people. Apparently, there were uh, a number of just prophets for hire during that day. You buy the groceries, then peace on your house. You give me nothing, strife and struggle for you. Uh, That that may seem sort of silly, right? Who wants to go pay for a prophet just to tell you something's going to be good? But but Paul warns that, that this is not something that's just unique to ancient peoples. In Second Timothy four three, he gives us the same warning. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. How many people today give to prosperity ministries just to be told that God will bless them? How many people switch churches to find a word, to find sermon styles that fit their preferences? How many of us only ever listen to podcasts or read books that affirm what we already think, what we want to hear? The market for designer words from God is very much alive and well. This isn't a problem only faced in Micah's day. And God's poetic justice here is cutting to the root of the problem. He's saying, you treated God's word lightly, so now God is going to remove his word from you. Verse 6, therefore it shall be night to you without vision, and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. The idea there's going to be night without vision, darkness without divination. That's, that's when you would hear from God in dreams and when you go out to, to hear and divine and he's saying God is not going to speak to you. There's a blackness coming and you're gonna have no warning about the coming judgment. But even more than the threat of that coming doom, do we shudder at this idea? Does the idea that God might stop speaking to his people cause us to even pause? Have we grown so used to having more Bibles than we have time to read them? Make this word not even phase us. Because the heart of the matter is this. Do God's people really want to hear from God? We know in Micah's day, they did not. They told him to stop speaking in chapter 2. They didn't want to hear that judgment was coming. They were giving all sorts of reasons why that couldn't have been what God said. But, The same question applies to us. Do we want to hear God's word even if it's bad news? Even if we don't like what we're hearing? Again, there are a lot of things in the Bible that that make us uncomfortable. The idea of God's wrath, the destruction on Canaan and hell, the discussion of differences in gender and the way that we're to live. And there's a lot to say about all of those things. I'm not going to go into any of those topics, and and they're they're big topics. They're worth talking about. This doesn't mean that we can't ask questions and think well, but, but consider just this question. Do you want to hear God speak in these topics? No matter what the answer might be, or are you just most concerned with figuring out how you can justify the answer you already want right now? Does your reading of the Bible generally skip to the parts that make you feel comfortable, the parts that about love, the parts that encourage you for the day, or are you studying it to learn what God has said? Is that your heart? What about teachers, those of us who have any role for proclaiming God's word? Be that on Sunday morning in some setting, or be that in a small group discussion, maybe that's just sharing with your friends over coffee. When you go to declare what God has said, when you go to give advice and to speak truth, how desperate are you to know that what you're saying is what God has said? How much of our words sound like our own personalities and our experiences and our preferences and how much of it sounds like we have sought and heard in our reading of the Bible and in our prayer and our listening for the spirit to speak. That we are desperate to know that what we are saying is God's word. And does the idea that God might remove it from his people, that Micah is warning his people of that, does that make us shudder? If God removed his word from us today, where would we notice? And then God turns his vision back to the whole people. And if, if we are shuddering at the idea that God might remove his word, then you might actually find some comfort in the fact here that Micah is saying God has not removed his word because Micah still has it, even if what's being declared here is judgment. Verse 8, But as for me, I am filled with power. With the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money, yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height." Here at the end, Micah sort of zooms back out and sees all of this together as a comprehensive picture of the way corruption is among his people. Right? It's the, leader, the leaders are building Jerusalem with iniquity. And it's Jerusalem's priests and prophets corrupt and twisting God's word. And destruction is coming on Jerusalem to the whole people. That's not to say that God is not still judging individual sins. That's what we saw in the first seven verses. That that God's poetic justice will come to each person exactly the way that it deserves. But we're also to see that God's judgment is coming on the whole people. Because he is not going to be satisfied just with a bunch of holy individuals. He's looking for a holy nation. And therefore, when corruption is among the whole people, when these problems are cropping up among the leaders and priests of the people, we've got to fix a problem among the people. And this kind of makes sense if you think about it, right? Because how many of us think that if God just eliminated those leaders and just replaced the prophets with new one, that all the problems would go away? Right, right. I mean, how many election cycles have you been through here? That's not how it works. The people's, the leaders' sin is just representative of the corruption among all people. And so God is looking for a holy nation. How is he going to get that? Where should we be looking for that sort of thing? When you read the prophets, you can't just take what God is saying to the nation of Israel and apply it to any other nation. Right, he's not saying this to Assyria, he's not saying this to America. It's true that he does relate to all nations, right? It's true that he's going to require judgment be done among all nations, but him he's looking for a people. What we should hear today is that he's looking for his people among the church. And just as God was not satisfied in this day until the people were a holy nation, God is not satisfied in our day until we, the church, can be described as a holy nation. As we look around our community, this is what we should be seeing first. Are we a place that does justice? Is justice done among the community of believers And among those you're specifically connected to is Lakeview Christian Center a place where the leaders lead justly, where the people speak God's word, where we are desperate to hear from him. And we are all in this together. None of us can be satisfied to say that I am living rightly, therefore I have nothing to worry about. Because God sees us both as individual Christians and as an assembly. And so we need to learn To cry with Isaiah, woe is me, Isaiah 6, 5. He says, woe is me for I am lost for two things. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. We cannot be satisfied that I am living rightly. We must ask, are we living rightly We should not just weep for our own sins, but for the ongoing sins that are happening among our community of believers as God continues to make us into his holy nation. Just because you can't quickly answer the question, what can you do about that? How can you help people in your church, maybe people you've never met or people you seem to have little influence with, just because you can't answer the question of how can I help, what can I do, doesn't mean you get to skip the question. Have you asked, have you prayed to say, God, what would you have me do as you are working your people into a holy nation? He, he very well might have an answer for you because we see here he cares about this. He's looking for justice to be done among his people and he sends people like Micah like Hezekiah, as we'll see later, he sends people to work justice among his people, and we should be asking and praying and seeking that be done among us. That we would become a royal priesthood, a people who love creatively and generously. That we would be a diverse assembly who are so caught up and united by our identity in Christ that we can do whatever it takes to overcome our remaining differences. We can be a place where the poor are not mistreated, are ignored, but are welcomed and cared for. A gathering that's full of encouragement and joy, where coarseness and division have no place. A place where God's word is taken seriously. It's lived out for all the world to see that we are truly a city on a hill. And Micah 3 is showing us how far we have to go to get from a corrupted nation to a holy people. One of the things this should do is lead us to lament and repentance. And actually, that's what we see it did in Micah's day. These words, Micah 3, was remembered roughly 100 years later as the words by which God brought repentance to his people, even in this day. Let me read you this from Jeremiah twenty six sixteen through 19. This is Jeremiah speaking before the court of the king, and he says, Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, This man does not deserve the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. They didn't, some of them didn't want to hear God's word in this day either. But certain of the elders of the land arose and spoke to all the assembly, pe- assembled people, saying, Micah of Morsheth. Prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, hear these words quoted verbatim from Micah 3 Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountains of the house a wooded height. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster? That he had pronounced against them. If you just read Micah 3, there's not a lot of hope that you find in that chapter. We're going to see Micah 4 is going to change that tone. That's not, not that Micah is without hope, but but God through Jeremiah has intended that we would know the outcome of Micah 3. That these words led to repentance and at least a temporary reprieve from the coming judgment. It may even be that Micah intended his readers to hear that when they read chapter 3. Sort of like if I say the phrase to most Americans, the British are coming, you don't just think, oh, the British are coming. You think, oh, yeah, America won that war. Micah's in chapter 3, if you hear that Zion will be plowed as a field, you're not just supposed to remember that Zion's going to be plowed as a field. You'll remember, oh, yeah, Micah said that, and the people repented. Micah's condemnation accomplished its purpose. And in no way does this mean that God's word has failed because it's always a goal of God declaring his judgment that the people would repent. If the people repent and God does not end up bringing his judgment, it means that God's word worked, not that it failed. And we need to remember that this is the goal of God's declared judgment. Judgment when we feel condemned ourself, when we read passages in Scripture, it is appropriate that they would bring conviction, that we would feel the weight of our own sin. It's possible even reading Micah has done that for you, or certainly other places in the Bible should be doing that, where you are recognizing the reality of continued sin, the fact that you are not yet someone who could be described as a member of a holy nation But the goal of that is not to leave you in your guilt, but to lead you to repentance and restoration. God is merciful in the fact that he has shown you what he wants to change in your heart. And you should find hope in the fact that he is the one who will accomplish that. But perhaps even more, it's essential to remember that the goal of judgment is repentance when we perceive injustice among the larger church. It is especially egregious when we see injustice among the church, when we see different groups treated poorly, when we see people continuing to seek their own ends rather than justice and mercy that God commands. It's like the wrongness of those corrupted rulers. It's, it's even worse because it was supposed to be so much better. But we should be careful not to learn from our culture that the only response to evil is to destroy it and to cut it off and to be done with it. Because that's not how God relates to a fallen humanity. That's not how he has related to you and me. And aren't we glad? The goal, the reason that Micah is declaring this judgment is so that the people would see their darkness and come out, that they would repent, that they would return to the God who has called them and who loves them. Matthew 18, 15 teaches us that this is always the goal when we call out a brother who is sinning. Jesus tells us, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. It's not just to tell him that he's wrong, to prove that you're right, to make him stop. It's to gain your brother back. This is how we relate to one another when we call out each other's sins. When we see injustice, we're not to ignore it. We're to call it out. We're to go and speak to it. We're to love them enough to call them to better. And then we're to hope and to pray and to plead and to do everything we can to restore them. Micah 3 might seem harsh, but it is full of hope. God does not just ever send judgment, he also sends mercy. The mixture of this towards his people is what we see, that his judgment is after repentance and restoration. And next week, we're going to see something about how God is going to lead his people out of corruption into restoration. What is that going to take? How is it going to work when the problem seems so So I hope you'll join us next week as we continue to walk through the book of Micah.